Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing guest, you know, a guest that uh, has done it, you know, has been there. Uh, it's uh, now building his own baby, building, scaling, financing, you name it. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Amin Skrolahi. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Originally born there in Tehran. You know, obviously the environment there, you know, has been very shaky, you know, and we're going to be talking about it now, you know, uh, as to what that, how that impacted your own journey. But, but since the very early beginnings, you know, you were thought out to be a gifted child. So tell us your upbringings there in Iran. Yeah, this is true. I went to school already at the age of five. This was a school for gifted students. I had to take a test and everything. Um, my mom was very much behind it. And so were our brothers who were mathematics professors. So they were kind of pushing me. I, you know, they started teaching me abstract math at the age of five. And one of my uncles hasn't stopped since. So he's still teaching me math. Um, and, uh, you know, this was before the revolution of Iran. So Iran was a different country. There were many different uh, foreign schools in Tehran as well. One of them was the German school. And I, uh, after finishing the fourth grade, I took another set of exams and was accepted into the German school. They had a special program for Iranian students to go through the entire sort of German curriculum. We, we didn't know a word of German, but they taught us the language. And at this point, I speak the language probably better than my mother tongue, Farsi. So, um, yeah, uh, we, we went through that school. But before I had finished, the Iranian revolution came, school was closed. I left the country in a very dramatic, in a super dramatic way, because the, I was the really the last flight before the war between Iran and Iraq broke out. Uh, and, uh, I left Germany to finish high school, and I kind of got stuck there. And how old were you? I mean, I mean, how old were you when you were getting in that in that airplane? I was sixteen at that point. Wow. Uh, my friends uh, were eighteen; they were two years older than I was. Um, and uh, we went to a boarding school in Germany. It was fun because then you know, I was, you know, going with my friends on a, you know, really nice adventure. But then at the same time, I was kind of worried about my family back home and the war going on and all those things. But it was a fantastic experience, and it, the experience is still ongoing after what almost forty years now. 
And how do you think it changes perspective, you know, in life? I mean, because at 16, obviously, you are aware of what's happening around you. And here you are going into a plane and, and you are like one of the probably the last ones to leave because right after that, they, they, they were bombing the, the airport there. So, so really for you, I'm sure that you're packing everything, getting into an airplane, leaving all of this behind, you know, war, you know, like really happening now, a new culture, a new place. I mean, how did that change the perspective for you? First of all, I only I thought we will be going there to Germany for nine months only. So I didn't even know that a war would break out, right? So when I got on the plane, it was kind of all fun. It was when I got off the plane, <laughs> it wasn't fun anymore because I realized what was happening. But, you know, I was with my friends. So and we have a very, very strong relationship. We have, you know, after 40 years, every two weeks, we have a Zoom call where, you know, we join from all over the world and talk to one another. Because obviously going through an experience like this is, uh, is life-changing. Everything was new, you're right. For me, everything was new. And this newness was uh, what I liked a lot. And, you know, I was looking forward to a new future, right? So it was nice. And for the most part, it was nice. But, of course, not everything was nice. And, and mathematics and computer science has been, you know, pretty much something that, that you've been going after, you know, since, since very early on, obviously, as you were saying, with mathematics, since you were like five. Uh, but but what do you think, you know, is that part in you that is so excited about problem solving? I'm just a very curious person. That is what I have. And I think this is, uh, you know, when when my uncles started teaching me math, I think they, they started something in me that was curiosity to, 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 to be curious about. So you pose a problem or a question. And you burn inside of curiosity to find the solution of that. It's just part of something that I am. And it's not just about solving sort of mathematical problems. It's also, you know, if I didn't have it, sort of my entrepreneurial experience would have been a disaster. But I'm just curious to see, you know, where's the end of it? What can I do? Where can I land? Et cetera, et cetera. And without that, you cannot be a scientist for sure. And I think without that, you cannot be an entrepreneur either. And in your case, you know, definitely after getting your, your computer science degree, you got your PhD too, but, but you decide it's time to pack up the bags again, you know, and you find yourself in, in the U.S., I mean, in, in Berkeley. So, so, so why the U.S.? Well, the U.S. has a large number of extremely good universities. And you want to, uh, if you want to have a research career, it's a fantastic thing to spend time in those universities with sort of the top people in the field. And I loved Berkeley because uh, right after my high school diploma, I went and visited my uncle there for two months in 1981. It was just the most amazing experience, most amazing experience. And so I told myself, I'm going to come back here. I don't know when, but I'm going to come back here. So it took a lot. It took a while until I, until I went there. It was more than 26 years. But then I was there. Um, the University of Berkeley has one of the best mathematics programs in the world. And it has also one of the best computer science programs in the world. So being there, you know, talking to all these researchers um, and the openness that they, they had towards me. I mean, I wasn't really a big deal at that time, right? But they, they were open to me and to my ideas. And that's what helped me a lot, yeah. Was there a point for you where you decided that perhaps the research was not your thing, that you wanted to maybe like... Uh venture out and, and take a look at more of the corporate side of things? 
actually that point never came. <laughs> research is still my my flame is research. But applying that research has always also, also been a uh, you know something that I like. Back when I was a student, uh, you know, doing my even in my bachelor program, I used to sell prime numbers. It's a very funny thing to say. But, you know, this RSA crypto scheme, a crypto system had come up and people wanted to have prime numbers of certain shapes and sizes. I used to sell it to them and I found it really fascinating. Not the money, but, you know, if somebody asks you, what do you do? You sell prime numbers, right? <laughs> Who can say that? So I was always interested in kind of applying things. Um, and, uh, yeah, eventually, you know, I joined Bell Labs later after a few years of postdoc at Berkeley. Because I want, you know, Bell Labs was still this big research lab that was doing uh, applied and theoretical research. And I wanted to learn that. So I went there. But after two years, I kind of got fed up with, uh, you know, the way research was run there. And I joined a startup in California called Digital Fountain. And uh, I became their chief scientist. How big was the company when you joined? There were 30 people, if I'm not mistaken. And the company grew a lot. Uh, and then, you know, we came through the sort of dot-com bust of 2002, et cetera. But the company survived it. You know, we had to downsize massively, but the company survived it. Um, and uh, later, the company grew again. And eventually, uh, Qualcomm acquired the company in 2009. And I guess, you know, probably one of the lessons there that is interesting that maybe you, you were exposed to was going through corrections, right? And every, every, every time, you know, whether you're building a business or you're operating in a certain market, there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. But obviously, the way that you manage those downs is really going to impact the culture and going to allow for perhaps the operation to continue thriving in the event it's able to survive. I guess, you know, with your experience with Digital Fountain, during that time where the correction happened, I'm sure that, you know, the way that it was handled and the way that it was embraced, you know, at a culture level, I'm sure that that made a really big impact in order to really turn it around and get that acquisition from Qualcomm later on. So, so what did you learn from that experience? One of the things I learned is you have to be really careful how you scale a company. Now, back in the dot-com days, you had to scale the company no matter what, because that's what the investors want. But you have to be really careful about that. Scale it at the right time. Um, and, you know, the value of personal relationship with your colleagues is super important, right? You know, you have to let go of colleagues that you have. And how do you do that? How do you fire people in that? You have to do it in a socially very competent way because you run into these guys a few years later. And if you have done wrong on them, they will, they will not forget, right? Um, that was really a very important thing. And, you know, even today in my company today, Obviously, you know, every once in a while I have to fire someone. But I'm really friends with all the people that I fire. You know, I have coffee with them every once in a while. And, you know, it is, it is just, you know, you have to have respect for the person. So how, how, how do you do that? Because I'm sure that there's a lot of people now listening that maybe they're dealing with whatever, you know, internally or with someone that is not performing. So how do you fire someone with honesty and with respect so that you are, you know, a leaving that door open in order to have a, a relationship outside of that working environment? I think the very first thing is be genuine. 
It's very important. Of course, if you're genuinely bad, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but it shouldn't be about the person. It should not be about the person. It should be about maybe what the, you know, the job that they have done that maybe wasn't that great. Maybe there is, it's not a good match, but it's not about the person. And some people, I guess, when they fire others, they make it about the person. And that is never going to be, never, ever. You can never get out of that hole, ever. So I think this is what I do really well. And and I am, you know, very, very diplomatic and all sorts of things. And, you know, you were asking about, um, you know, things going wrong in a company. What something that you really need is tolerance to frustration. And this is something I built up as a scientist because you, you start working on a topic especially in math, right? You try to prove something, prove something, and you know, your proofs always um, don't work out. And you're frustrated, but you have to sort of pick up that frustration and go for the next trial run. Yeah. And this is something you need to do in a company as well. I mean, there's so much, there's so much frustration coming, so much. <laughs> Unbelievable. And and in your case, I mean, while you were, you know, at Digital Fountain, obviously the, the company got acquired by Qualcomm, you know, which is a nice also for you to see the full cycle of a company that you had joined when there were just 30 employees. Uh, but you were able to really start to incubate, you know, the idea of can do, you know, what, what would really eventually become your baby. So can you tell us about what was that process of really coming up uh, across the idea and really bringing it to life? Yeah, you know, my background is not electronics at all. I'm a mathematician and a computer scientist. Um, I was having a coffee with a postdoc on some other problem. It was a problem we were working on. And then this postdoc told me about uh, a method of transmitting signals uh, between two chips. It's called differential signaling. And I let him explain it to me. And uh, I realized it is not a very efficient solution. And came up very quickly, came up with a different solution. And I thought, well, you know, this is something known in the industry, but it wasn't. So my my uh, curiosity was piqued. Why was it? Why is it known? What is happening there? And especially given that data transmission between two chips is such an important problem, uh, what do I do with it? I, are we going to write a paper about it and be done with it? Or I quickly realized, no, this is not what I want to do. We're going to patent this solution first, and then we're going to look into starting a company that markets this. Now, if I had known. How the semiconductor industry works, I would probably not have started the company because you know this is not how you start a company in this field. But um, you know, I was convinced; I'm still convinced that this is the right way. And you know, no matter how many times I got slapped in the face, no matter how many times somebody hit on my head, I, I am still convinced it is the right thing. So I'm continuing on that path. So then, tell us about the early days. Like, you know, I'm sure that the early days, you know, were quite remarkable because especially like you were saying for someone like you that comes without any idea of electronics i mean you're like venturing yourself into into the unknown so what were some of those early days like this was really my honeymoon with the with the field right it was just fantastic everything was possible i was looking at the problems that the field had and i would come with come up with solutions we will patent those solutions uh, we had a small team, but very dedicated. Uh, and we had our first chip out in our, you know, within three months, right? It was one of those periods where everything seemed possible. Really, everything, everything seemed possible. 
Um, and uh, I think this is really the uh, the reason why I would probably again start a company at some point. It's just feeling that you can do anything you want. Yeah, and that that is a great feeling. But but I guess for the people that are listening to get a better idea on what ended up becoming possible, because obviously here you are with Kandu, you know, like really making it happen. What ended up being the business model of Kandu? Well, I started the company without even having any business model in mind. Well, you know, business model was actually there. So we will do IP licensing. This seemed to be clear to me because that's the easiest thing to do. Well, at least, you know, it's not very capital intensive. Um, and we did actually, we are an IP provider today, but we changed our business model. We expanded it and we are also designing and then selling chips to our customers. Something that I, you know, I, I started taking notes back then, which is really funny. I thought, all right, I have this idea. So what are the various stages of the company, right? So I will design a proof of concept inside the lab because I was a professor at EPFL. And this will take six months. Then I go, uh, you know, start the company and then create maybe an advanced prototype of a product that will take about a year. And then I'm going to raise, you know, good amount of money and uh, make that advanced prototype into a real product that will maybe take another two to three years. And then I'm going to scale up. That's what I thought. The first estimate of six months was correct. Everything else was totally wrong. Of course, it took a long, much longer time than I thought it would take. Um, you know, where I am today, if once I had started the company, I thought I would be at this point four years into the life of the company. And now it's 10 years into the life of the company. Wow. It's just, you know, it's when you start a company, there are two things. Everything takes longer than you think, and you need always more money than you think. Now, now that you know that, I mean, it's, it's really interesting that, especially after, after having had that exposure in the U.S., you know, like to all the contacts, to the companies there, to being in startup life. I mean, why why did you stay there in Luxon versus, you know, coming, you know, to the Bay Area or areas where you're going to be much better, you know, in terms of access to money or talent? Because I'm sure that in Switzerland, you know, it was probably crazy how how green, you know, people and unsophisticated people were probably at that point compared to what you were used to in the U.S. So why did you stay there? Because I like living here. You know, there is a reason I left the U.S. I you know, I, I like living where I where I like. And what I did is I brought the U.S. investors over to Switzerland. <laughs> I'm not going there. You're coming here to me. I love it. I love it. So, but in your case, I mean, I mean, what 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 was some of the crazy stuff that that you were present, you know, there to and exposed to? Because obviously, the the startup environment, you know, has has really scaled a lot, you know, in the past ten years. Uh, but I mean, I'm sure that when you were starting out, like it was completely unheard of, you know, startup the startup world there? Well, you know, our, our university has always been at the forefront of creating startups. I mean, one thing that a lot of people don't know is Logitech came out of our university, for example. Nice. Right. Um, but so at the beginning, I think there's just too many vultures around. So we have this innovation park and there are a lot of startups and there are these, these people going around saying, um, hey, you know, this is a great idea. I'm going to put in, I don't know, 100,000 for half the company. Right. And, you know, if you're a young person coming out of college, 100000 may seem a lot. And they, you may say, hey, that's a great deal. Let's do that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I wasn't a young person at that point. 
So I had my experience. So they would also come to me, but, or, you know, somebody comes to me and says, hey, I'm going to get you uh, this company, that company, that company to buy your technology. But what I want in return is a non-executive board position. But what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> what do you, first, you know, if I want to buy something, I need to see whether what the thing that I'm buying is actually worth something. So why don't you start with something? If I see that it works, then we can talk about it. Of course not, right? Um, there's just a lot of this stuff. And oh, the other thing that is really interesting, I find, is you start a company and then you get bombarded by letters from reputable companies that say, hey, we have this competition. Why don't you apply? And then, you know, if you win, you can win whatever, 100,000 francs or $1,000. And so the whole thing is a ruse to get your information. Right? They want to know, okay, this company, how did it start? You know, what's its capital? What's its business model, et cetera, et cetera. This, this, this uh, whole thing is a scam. The whole thing is a scam. Right? Other types of scam I saw was, so obviously, you know, we are a big patent, a big patent house. We have about 400 patents. Yeah. We apply to the European Patent Office, for example. Okay. And then I get a letter that looks like from the European Patent Office. It says, well, you know, you applied for this patent application. You have to pay us 4,000 euros, right? And now I know that I don't have, they would never send this to me. It would send, they would send it to my lawyer. So I knew it. So I, I look closely at it. And then it says the money is for inclusion of your name in a booklet that we are. <laughs> That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. But one, one, one thing that you did well, I mean, though, is uh, you surrounded yourself by the right people. I mean, you were able to come across uh, Steve Papa, and obviously Steve Papa, uh, a very successful entrepreneur that sold his own company to Oracle for 1.1 billion. So, so I guess, how do you connect with Steve, and 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 how do you think that relationships like like that has really you know helped you in in the journey? Well, I got to know Steve when I was in the U.S., so we know each other since what 1996, maybe, and. Um, you know, he struck me right there when I thought, I mean, it was just super, super, super smart guy who knows everything about everything. Really amazing guy. So when I had these ideas on this chip-to-chip -chip communication, I just so happened that I had to go to Boston for something. So I met with him for lunch and I told him about the ideas. And he said, hey, you have to start a company. I'm going to help you with that. And I tell him, you know, to this day, I don't know whether I should thank him or curse him for having done that. So, um, you know, he really encouraged me to do it. And he started helping me. He would come to Lausanne, even though he was running his own company, would come to Lausanne, um, help me out with details. If any time I had any issues, any problems, any doubts, I would call him. He would help me. And he's still like that. He's on my board. Um, he put in money, uh, you know, first, first uh, 10 million and then over the years more. Um, and he's a big believer in the company. And, uh, you know, without him, there would not be a can-do for sure. That is for sure. That's amazing. And obviously, that really contributed as well to landing some of those super sophisticated U.S. investors uh, like Bessemer. I mean, definitely, you know, the, the way that you raise money today, as they say, is going to impact the way that you can raise money tomorrow. So how did Bessemer and, you know, others really helped you out in this process of building the business? Yeah, you know, what I tell people who ask about investment is, you need to raise only once, really. The first, your first investor. If your first investor is the right investor, that investor will almost raise the money for you in the next rounds. 
because they have, of course, a lot of friends that are investors. You know, they 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 have a lot of say in this in this space. So, so Steve brought in Bessemer, and Bessemer brought in a lot of my other later investors. You know, especially you know here, an investor sort of looks at it. So, who is backing you? And they hear Bessemer, and you know, basically that's it. Right, game over. Yeah. Because these guys have done you know due diligence and they do you know, really good stuff. And how how much capital have you guys raised to date? I mean, uh, you know, we have raised a little over 130 million altogether in various rounds. And for the people that are listening, also to 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 get an understanding of how big Candu is today. I mean, anything that you can share around employee number or anything else? Yeah, we have. Uh, I think we have between 135 and 140 employees right now. I mean, it's changing, so I can't really tell you the exact number. Uh, we have about 400 patents. Which is uh, which I'm really proud of. This is a very um, patent heavy, and that patent portfolio has been um, vetted multiple times across you know during my investment rounds by uh, our investors. And we have you know many customers. But I'm not going to put a number on it. And obviously, I cannot. There's one customer I can talk about. It's Marvell, but all the other customers are um, I cannot talk about them. Yeah, that's that's where we are. I think these are the numbers. Oh, yeah, and then we have we are active in many different uh, countries. Yeah. We have uh, we have uh, headquarters in Switzerland. We have offices in the UK, in Germany, in Denmark, in Taiwan, in uh, Japan, and in the US. And why Taiwan, out of all places? Well, this is the center for semiconductor industry. Got it. And that's where. So, you know, we are building, for example, the, the chip, the newest chip that we have is for a USB, um, for a USB protocol. And the center of USB is Taiwan. So all the companies, you know, when you, when you probably the devices that you have, um, unless it's an Apple, then it's not. But, you know, if you have other devices, they have been in part manufactured there and designed there. So that's the right place to be. So, so imagine that uh, that you go to sleep tonight. I mean, and you wake up in a world, let's say five years later, uh, where the vision of Candu is fully realized. What does that world look like? For sure, it will look like a lot more work for me. That's <laughs> clear. <laughs> um, so, in five years' time, the vision of Candu is fully realized. We are a public company with a market cap probably over ten billion dollars. Uh, with sales, according sales, according uh, to to that market cap, uh, we are in a very large number of devices worldwide, and uh, you know my days will have to start at four a.m. and end at uh, two a.m. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to quantify in terms of uh, of timing. So so here in this case, you know, one thing that I always like to ask the guests that come on the show is: imagine, you know, if I have the opportunity of really transporting you back in time. And here you are in 2011. You're already, you have the opportunity of speaking. You have your younger self right in front of you. That younger self that has come up with the idea of Kandu. And you're able to give that younger self, that younger Amin, one piece of advice before launching the business. What would that be and why based on what you know now, Amin? Okay, I would say don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just much tougher than you think. Um, so what would I, I mean, I think I would tell him that he needs to um, have much more focus on a first product. And I would tell him that, um, you know, you have to invest money 
into a lot of the things that you want to do in order to get the output. You know, you cannot run a company on a shoe on a shoestring budget, right? Especially right. in this. Yeah. So these are, and you know, you have to build prototypes to convince your customers. Got it. These are three things I would tell them. So as you're thinking about the the prototype and the customers, I mean, what were what what would you say or what would you tell your younger self as to maybe like steps to take to really make it as effective and efficient as possible to really get it right? Yeah. So again, I would I would tell that younger self what product to build with the with the tools that he had at that point, or what prototype to build, and uh, I would tell him who to approach with those prototypes, which companies. And uh, with what message? Yeah, it would be great if I could go back. My God, I mean, I would save so much. <laughs> imagine, imagine. And again, you know, it's not saving because, you know, you are the the sum the sum of all your experiences, good and bad. And uh, you cannot just leave, you know, the bad experiences out and think that you are the same person. No. So, so in in your case, I mean, what would you say? You know, has been a a book that has made a big impact for you that uh, that you wish you would have found uh, earlier. There is a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Ben Horowitz. Ben. That's a really an eye opener. <laughs> but you have to read that book when you have gone through a lot of uh, crap, right? Because you see that somebody like him had exactly the same problems. So that is a uh, you know that that was really a good book to read. Yeah, no, that's a, definitely a good one. So I guess for the folks that are listening, Amin, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? They can send me an email at Amin, my first name, at Kandu, name of my company, dot com. Fantastic. Well, Amin, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure and an honor. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.